and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 384 and my conversation with the adjunct instructor of percussion, composition, and theory at High Point University in North Carolina, composer and freelance percussionist, Lewis Raymond Kolker. Let's get right to it. I'm meeting Lewis here for the first time, and I'm glad he decided to be on the show. I became aware of Lewis through seeing him perform with the University of Nebraska-Lincoln Percussion Ensemble at PASIC when that group was under previous podcast guest Dave Hall. And David talked about Lewis's ability on Steel Pan particularly, and Marimba as well, during that conversation. I followed up with Lewis later on, and here we are. Lewis has been active for a few years, teaching primarily in percussion performance and composition, as well as being a performer. He's been continuing in that compositional vein for a while, writing actively for Steel Pan in various combinations of instruments, as well as other works, and those works are published with C. Allen Publications and Boxfish Music. It was also great to check in with Lewis right now, as he's living and working in the Piedmont Triad area of North Carolina, a place I know very well since I lived there for a decade while doing my undergrad and graduate degrees. And that's part of the fun today. In the conversation, we'll hear about Lewis's activities, his compositional career, growing up in the Austin, Texas area, his higher ed degrees at Texas A&M Commerce, studying under previous podcast guest Brian Zader, and at Nebraska-Lincoln. He'll also talk about that time he was a U.S. Postal Service mail carrier, and we'll have our usual close to the show. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on February 1st, 2024, and it begins right now. So, Lewis, give me a summation of your percussion activities and responsibilities as they are at this point. So I teach at High Point University, which is a kind of small uh, private program in the triad. I see you nodding because um, I know that you're familiar with Winston and Greensboro and High Point. I live in Winston yeah. and I teach in High Point. Um, my job has shifted around a lot since I've gotten there. So I got hired to teach applied percussion, um, percussion ensemble, assistant direct to the wind ensemble. And I was supposed to teach theory my first year, but I wasn't able to make that happen just with other teaching schedule conflicts. Uh, after my first semester, the drum set professor retired. And so I took on the drum set applied load. And then in fall of last semester, which was my second year, I was able to pick up that theory class. And so I was teaching Applied percussion, applied drum set, percussion ensemble, theory one, oral skills one, wind ensemble, um, which is objectively too much, especially at the adjunct level. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so fortunately, we were able to hire um, another adjunct to teach all the applied percussion and drum set. Okay. Um, and so that's my partner, Alex Richard, who we met at Nebraska, and she's great. And it's a big relief to have someone that I know is going to do a good job come and teach all of my students. Since that happened, that frees me up to teach applied composition. And so now I'm directing percussion ensemble, still assistant directing wind ensemble, and then just teaching 
music theory and oral skills two for the spring and about four hours of comp lessons a week. And then Alex has, I think, 17 percussion and drum set students total. So it really <laughs> was like way too much. If I was going to be adding the comp, that would have been way over my load. Your job does not involve athletic bands at all? No, not at all. Is that still Danny? Mm-hmm. So Danny still runs the marching band, and then they just hired an assistant director of athletic bands, um, who I think is like a brass player. Mm-hmm. And so Chris Thompson, who I know you've yeah. spoken with, um, was in the job previously, and he had all of the applied percussion, percussion ensemble, band, and he worked with the drumline. But when he left and they created my position, um, they just kind of replaced the athletic band stuff with music theory because my department chair was teaching that class and that was putting him in an overload. It's just like this constant game of Tetris or what's the one where it's like the you there's one square out of the puzzle missing and you get to shift every block around until it all fits. You know what I mean? Those slider okay. puzzles. Oh, um, Oh, what I don't know what they're called. Uh, Minesweeper? No. But you know what I'm talking about. I do, but I, I yeah. can't. Yeah. My wife probably plays it. That's just stuff that you're doing in High Point, or does that include all of your general percussion activities? Are you gigging or so, outside of that? Yeah, so that's just my teaching responsibilities at High Point. That is my only teaching job. I was working at uh, Winston-Salem State for the last two years, but I just left that position again just to have a little bit of creative time and a little bit of time to like sleep and do dishes and stuff. Yeah. Um, So that's the teaching load. I hadn't been writing a whole lot, especially in the last year. It was all just kind of teaching and performance-based, but I have been getting back into writing. I'm not advertising commissions and I'm not trying too hard to get them. I'm just writing pieces for the student groups at High Point because then I am not on anybody's timeline if I don't want to write the piece or if I don't have time to write a piece halfway after starting it, I can just drop it without anybody knowing. Um, So that's nice. But in the last year, I've written a piece for wind ensemble, a short piece for orchestra, a piece for choir, which I arranged the piano part for percussion quartet. So it'll be SATB choir with percussion quartet. Um, So I've gotten a lot of writing done just in that. Uh, And I wrote, co-wrote a percussion quartet with Matt Campbell in advance of him coming here in a couple weeks to work with our students. And we're putting on a big concert of his music. And then playing wise, it's really just kind of on a gig by gig basis. So I had, there's, I live in Winston and there's so many <laughs> opportunities around here. Um, I'm not on the symphonies sub list yet. And I got called once for Greensboro opera and I couldn't make one of the rehearsals. So they just moved on to someone else, but I've played a little bit with the Piedmont wind symphony and I play pretty often with the North Carolina brass band because their conductor, uh, Brian Meixner, is the director of instrumental studies at High Point. And so I see him on the daily. Mm -hmm. And so 
that's my primary playing. And then just trying to keep solo chops up and commission solo pieces as I can and do collaborations. And then later this semester, I'll be going to Austin to play with Inside Out Steel Band and with my duet partner, Lauren Malloy, um, as Larkspur Percussion. And then I'll be playing with Austin Percussion Collective kind of all over the course of that week. And so that's that's what I'm practicing for right now. So it, because this position is adjunctive, I'm going to assume that you're, you're still like you're in a... Um, still looking for a, the big job or what, what's kind of the, where does that settle at at the moment? It's really hard to know because I don't have a doctorate. And so going for the big job would require either me going to get a DMA or a miracle. And I'm not, I'm not counting on the miracle to happen. And I just don't, it's hard to want to roll the dice on going to it, like leaving this place where I really feel comfortable, feel like there's good connections, good quality of life here, um, going somewhere else for a few years and then going somewhere else. And that's the best case scenario. Yeah. Um, so I've really kind of paused that search um and i'm just trying to see what i can get out of my time here and it's hard to know and it's hard to plan especially because i'm a percussionist composer and i came to composing much later especially kind of professionally and academically much later than i did percussion and so there's part of me which really wants to just go full send and get the comp dma and part of me is like but I want to keep conducting my progression ensemble. Right. <laughs> like I want to take my students to basic. So I'm trying to like close the vision on the future and just see like what I can get out of the present in this position. Um, the good news. And you, I, I, cause you, you, you knew that I knew your school and, um, mm-hmm. and all that stuff in that area is there is a lot of, um, of gig work, there particularly you didn't even mention i don't know if you've gotten involved in any of the church performing but that yeah was, just a bit yeah i mean that was i i that's one of those things since i've left north carolina i mean that like i don't even do remotely the same level i was as a grad student i was getting like a lot mm-hmm. of chances and so it was you know as someone who's there it's it was one of those things i just like an avenue of playing i just it wasn't even mm-hmm. I don't even see it. So, yeah. And I mean, one of the things I forgot to mention too, is that high point has a community orchestra. And Mm. so I am the principal percussionist in that group. And so also every Sunday night I'm playing. So like pretty involved rap. I got into it thinking that I'd be like playing timpani on a classical symphony and just kind of chilling out and playing my five ones. But then we're doing um, film scores and pieces with narration and all of the like crazy pops kind of programs that yeah. require three people on huge multi setups and everyone has a mallet part. Like we're doing kind of rep here. So nice. um, yeah, I, I feel like church gigs along with commissions, it's like, I don't seek them out, but I do take them as they're offered, especially just like if it's a friend 
who's MDing or if I think it's a cool thing, like I've done some steel pan at churches, then I'll do it. But it's also like my Sunday goes until eight thirty, <laughs> and then I have to teach a Monday morning theory class. So yeah, try to give myself a little bit of a break. But it is there's so much stuff here. There's so much music and so much art. That's like, <laughs> you're like I didn't wait. Pitch changes? Are you kidding me? Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> I thought we were doing hiding. Come on. <laughs> yeah. The semester before I started, because it was the drum set professor who was playing principal, and they did like Beethoven 5 and a couple of things that like I subbed in on a xylophone part. And then the next semester was film scores. And I was playing timpani for Star Wars. I was like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> There it is. That's great. How do you, and why are you in North Carolina in the first place? That's a great question. I get that a lot. So I finished my master's degree in 2020 at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I graduated there and I applied to every job that I was remotely qualified for and did not get any of them. And then in the fall, there was a posting that opened up at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And my friend Diana Loomer runs the steel band there. And I just heard great things about it. And I really wanted to get my foot in the door with university teaching. And so I applied for that job. And that was just teaching the front ensemble for the marching band. Got that, moved out to Boone fall 2021. As I was in Boone, uh, kind of interim position opened up at Winston-Salem State for adjunct percussion got that job was commuting from boone to winston which is like one and a half to two hours either way and that was a miserable drive but that's the the thing that you're supposed to do apparently to get your foot in the door and get the teaching experience um and after that year that's when the high point job opened up i was still teaching at winston-salem state and so i figured Two schools was plenty. I was not going to be doing that and commuting to do marching band. Um, so then that's when I moved to Winston. How often were you teaching at Appalachian State when you were there? So I was living in Boone and they had, I guess, Tuesday, Thursday marching band rehearsals. Plus sometime, usually either like a Saturday game or a Sunday sectional. So about three days a week. And then... During the spring, it was off-season, so I was just doing, like, one day a month, the kind of off-season audition camps. But also in that spring, when I was commuting, I was at Winston-Salem State three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, for a music theory fundamentals class and then lessons. And so I was driving to and from thrice a week. And So that so was, you had, like, a 90 to 120-minute drive each way way three times a week three times a week yeah and like through the mountains <laughs> getting out of boone and it, it is the snow getting out of boone so that's that, that's the thing about that i think there i've only made that trip maybe once or twice um mm-hmm. from there but but the the thing that's hard to I, I kind of explain to someone who's listening is that like there's one road in and out of boone and it is not a, a four lane highway. <laughs> no. Yeah. 
there was at least one day that I had to cancel my theory class because they were not letting people out of Boone. Like they had closed the mountain. Yes. To do road work. It's wild. I mean, I love Boone and I really had a good time working at App State, but it was kind of forcing this insular vibe just because it's it's hard to get out. And it's kind of its own world, really. Mm-hmm. That campus, there's a vibe to it. There's a vibe to the people who either they, they've lived there the whole time or they come to school and then they never leave. You move to Winston when you get the high point job. Right. So what was the schedule to try to make those two places work? It was not terrible. So the first semester that I was there... Yeah, which is a low bar. Um, <laughs> I was there. It was Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning theory at Winston Salem State, and then I would leave Winston Salem State immediately after my class, get to High Point early afternoon, mm-hmm. teach a couple of afternoon lessons, and then wind ensemble three thirty, percussion ensemble four forty five be done at six. So I was like, no, I'd forgotten. I also taught an 8 a.m. methods class at Winston-Salem State. Mm -hmm. So I was going eight to six, (laughs) Monday, Wednesday, and then Friday, it was at 1030 to six, which is much better across two campuses. And then lessons at High Point kind of in the middle of those afternoons and Tuesday, I think it was like just on Tuesdays, I was teaching my lessons at Winston-Salem. After that, I resolved to only do one campus per day. And that was a big help. So following that, I was able to get all of, I I wasn't teaching the theory class anymore. I only had one person enrolled in methods. And so I just taught it as a private lesson. And so I had lessons again, I think on Thursdays and High Point, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, then for orchestra. Same thing last semester, methods in the morning on Tuesday, Thursday, and then lessons. And then Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday at High Point. And now I am just Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday at High Point. Nice. Yeah. So it all pieces together, but it is, it's just a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I moved to Boone in... August 2021. For you all, was that mostly back to kind of normal from pandemic stuff? Or was there still were there still limitations? For the most part, it was, I don't know how well you remember, but like that summer, it seemed like everything was opening up. Yep. Uh, masks were going away and then things started to spike right before the semester started. So I remember... Friday night, my roommate, who was the drumline instructor, was having a Zoom with students, and they were like, do we need to have masks for this? And he was like, I don't think so. Like, nothing. They haven't said anything. And then the next day, Saturday, the UNC system was like, we are once again requiring masks indoors. Besides that, it was pretty much back to normal marching band, with the caveat that it was that marching band's first back to normal season, which meant it was a rebuilding year. And it was 
I don't remember exactly the director's timeline, but he was a relatively new faculty member. And so it was rebuilding and building at the same time. Yeah. And so it was, it was kind of ground up, which I loved. Like that is my ideal teaching situation. I would much rather have people that have never played anything before um, and try and fix what I feel are bad habits or deal with people that think they know more than they do and are resistant to learning. So I don't know. I love teaching beginners or high point. I teach primarily non-majors and that's, that's my favorite because it's just people that want to be there. I already know the answer to this question, but tell me about high point university, the school and the campus. Yeah. Uh, it's a vibe. (laughs) (laughs) That is is true. That's all I can say about it. It is a private institution. Tuition is very high because they provide so many amenities. Like I, I feel like I'm learning about a new one every week. Like uh, Brian, the instrumental director, um, kind of towards the beginning of winter break. And he's like, oh yeah, I'm taking my kids to the arcade after this. And I was like, oh, where's there an arcade? And he's like, on the bottom floor of this building, like where the coffee shop is. Have you not been to the arcade there? I was like, no. So it is a, a really pricey school and they do offer scholarships. They are one of the things that the university is really working on is trying to get more I guess a greater diversity of students from different economic backgrounds because it does skew wealthy. I will say in the music department, the students seem more down to earth human music students, just like anywhere else that I've been. I see some of the other people on campus and I just have to do a double take because I'm just, this is, this is a very different world than like I went to Texas A&M Commerce, which is in rural East Texas yeah. from undergrad, and we did not have an arcade on campus. <laughs> Most places don't, it turns yeah. out. Yeah, suffice to say. Um, well, and I mean, how much different of a world is it than Winston-Salem State, too? Yeah, exactly. Right. And teaching at both places at the same time was always such an interesting vibe shift. And then within the music department, we have a BA program. We are just adding now, starting in the fall, a major with a concentration in music business. Mm. Um, But it is typically not people that come in with a lot of playing experience. It's typically not people that are seeking to go to grad school for performance or even people that are going to get a music ed degree to go and be a high school director. And so it's a very liberal arts approach. And it's a very like teach every single person who walks in the door. Um, And I teach the theory one class for all the majors. And so we start at zero. Like literally I just assume that nobody in that class has ever looked at music before because technically we can admit music majors who have never looked at music before. and they're in that class and I want them to succeed. Yeah. So that's the, the culture in the music department. Um, and then the campus itself is just this kind of very well manicured, lots of columns, 
lots of fountains. I don't know if the fountains were there when you were in the area, but they just keep adding fountains because the president read that it like stimulates thought or something. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, I feel like universities are inherently weird places. And so I feel bad calling one university in particular a weird place. But to be fair, it is, it's a one of a kind place (laughs) within the category of a very weird type of institution. I won't say anything else until I'm done. That's, that's good. When I was in the area, I mean, this was, 25, 25, 30 years ago now. Um, Mm -hmm. and that, I mean, that university barely existed when I was, when I was there. And then, uh, I have a friend who lives relatively close to it. And, and this was, this was still like maybe a decade ago or so they're like, Hey, we should drive across one you want to see the campus. And I'm like, sure. And again, this is a decade ago. So it's, it's Mm -hmm. even, you know, I know it's grown from, but, but I remember driving around the campus, like, Oh my god! Like, <laughs> yeah. like just shocked. <laughs> so you must maybe you've just you. It's now just a normal. It's just where you work. It's good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's the thing too is like there are all of these crazy things about the campus. Um, yeah. But I go to the music building, the chapel where we sometimes have concerts, the black box theater where we sometimes have concerts the library and the student center where there's a coffee shop and the dining hall. I like, that's it. That's my interaction with the school. They're playing a game. They have a basketball game tonight and it's going to be broadcast on ESPN though. Mm. Um, and I am not going anywhere near your campus today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's going to be a mess. Yeah. On the composition side, because mm-hmm. you'd said that this is, you came to it later so yeah. what does that mean? Yeah, so I was writing music in high school the way that I think a lot of people when they're in high school do, which is just kind of for fun. And I don't think I even knew that you could major in composition or if that thought entered my brain, it immediately exited. Um, and so I just went, like I wrote stuff for fun and by my senior year, I had written a piece for the steel band at McCallum to play that I was a part of. And I think that's a good early example of at least where my head was at in terms of the type of music that I was writing and also that I was writing for steel band and writing stuff that didn't have engine room and was more kind of classical in style. Mm-hmm. Um and then I went to AM Commerce as a music education major. I left as a performance major, which is kind of another story. But I like the people that I was friends with in the department were also writing music and were also not composition majors. Yeah. And so it just stayed as a way to just keep my brain engaged and especially like as a steel panist, have rep to play both solo stuff and just small chamber stuff writing pieces for double second and marimba or i don't even remember at this point but just having things to play and we had a job search for a new theory professor at the end of my first year and we brought in a candidate who was a composer and i remember going to that job search and i specifically was like 
we don't have composition lessons offered on this campus. We should hire this candidate because he can teach composition in addition to whatever the theory coursework was. And when he got hired, I sent him an email summer before my sophomore year. And I was like, I want to take comp lessons. Like, is that something that we can set up? And his schedule was so full, that opportunity didn't even come up until I was a senior. And so I started taking comp lessons as a music performance major, as a senior in undergrad. And pretty quickly, I was like, yeah, I think this is what I want to do. Like, I think I want to dedicate more time to this. And I actually wrote three pieces that semester so that I could submit as a composition major for my graduate school applications. I hedged my bets by also applying for percussion programs where I knew that the faculty that I would study with composed. So I applied to study with Gordon Stout at Ithaca, Liam Teague and Greg Beyer at Northern Illinois, and then Dave Hall at Nebraska. Wound up going to Nebraska. It was just the best fit for me at that time, especially coming from like really, really rural Texas. Um, DeKalb and Ithaca were just too much of the same thing, but really cold. Where Lincoln was this like nice, you know, capital city, a uh, bigger institution, also really cold. But I got to study with Dave. And then while I was there, I also took hour long composition lessons every semester with Greg Simon, who I don't know if you saw the Nebraska PASIC show in 2019, or if you know the piece Snake Oil that we played on that concert. But Greg is a fantastic composer and really like has invested a lot in composition pedagogy. And I think that is maybe one of the most important arts that there is because I feel like composition tends to be perceived as so like up in the air and immaterial and like you can't teach it. You just have to do it. Turns out that's not true. You can actually teach composition. And Greg studying with him, A, gave me a lot to grow from just as a composer, but also I don't think that I would be able to teach comp lessons now unless I had his approach specifically when I was a student, because now I can ask students questions and lead them down a path of writing their own music rather than telling them that something is good or not. On that note, what do you entail or think about that that process looks like from the faculty side and then on the student side that you just described? So I think a lot of it is just setting parameters and making the students set parameters. So for example, I had a student come into a lesson yesterday. Um, I had assigned him, you know, bring in 30 seconds of something on this piece that you're writing. Um, he's doing a woodwind sextet because I also am not letting any of my students write for themselves, which is hilarious because that is the only person that I wrote for right, <laughs> when yeah. I well, was myself. Yeah. Um, so it's a real do as I say and not as I do. But I, so he brought in 30 seconds of music and I was like, all right, tell me what's happening. Like write down a little analysis, a little breakdown of what's happening. So, you know, things that he has the language for, which is like starts in G minor, starts with the lower instruments, melody moves to the higher instruments. It's pretty slow. Um, big cadence on G minor. Alto sax is playing the arpeggio under flute and oboe melody. 
And then it's like, all right, the next thing that you're going to write is the music that responds to that. So he's a video game design major too. And so I feel like I can always talk to him about video game stuff. And so I was like, you know, in games where there's a map, where if you haven't explored it, it's like covered in fog. You know it's there, you can see it, but you can't see what's in there. Like you can see 30 seconds of your piece. You can see the shape of the other four minutes or so. What do you think is going to come next? And, you know, describe, write down what you think could follow all of the things that you just wrote. You know, what could be a change that you could make or what, what do you want to keep the same? So he had written, the first part was G minor, low instruments, then high instruments. You know, we could change the key to G major. We could change the key to B flat major and do a relative key. We could keep the key the same. Do we want to keep going with the high instruments, go back to the low instruments, more unified, more episodic, and just kind of scrambling around? And I'm not telling him what to do. Like, I'm just giving him parameters to think in because I feel like that's the hardest part of writing music is knowing what to do. Whereas if you're just giving yourself little assignments, you can say like, okay, I am going to write something. We're going to go back to the low instruments. It's going to start in G minor, but maybe it's going to move and kind of shift down to F major or whatever. I'm glad you said all that. Cause it's, it's a, like a thing that I'm, I'm still learning about mm-hmm. on the, on both sides. Um, I will occasionally, I've, I've taught a recently taught a class on, uh, a percussion class for composers mm-hmm. um, last year. And, it, and there was a lot of trying to figure out like how to, how to help, you know, mm-hmm. cause, cause I, you know, on my own writing, I, the same kind of thing, like it's very much a discovery, but I hadn't, th- there are some, uh, as you said, parameters to kind of, that can at least kind of put a little box on, mm-hmm. <laughs> on some of it. Um, even though sometimes you, the box doesn't help. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Or sometimes you need the box because a student really just wants to break out of a box. Yeah. And so you're giving them something to break out against. I mean, that's that goes for everything, too. And part of it, too, is just like not sitting down on the first lesson and saying, what are you going to write? Uh, but talking to them about other music and digesting the kinds of ways that we're going to talk about music, that we're going to tackle timbre, which we never get to talk about in a theory class. Right. Uh, talk about the way that certain chords are voiced out and that it's not just the Roman numeral block SATB voicing. And just like I make them listen to a lot of music and journal about the music so that, and I tell them like, this should be the least academic writing ever. You just have to get all of your thoughts moving and like, turn on the faucet, even if it's just drips at first, like you have to at least get into a creative mindset. Yeah. I, I, that was a part of what I was going to follow up with was if you have the students, the ones that you work with in composition in particular, do you ask them what, like what they like listening to or. Oh yeah. Yeah. Influences. Yeah. That's the whole first lesson. And from then on, like, I just keep a Google Doc for every person's lesson. So if I name check three pieces that are all 15 minutes each, we're not going to sit and listen to it in their 25-minute lesson. But 
I can just put those in there and say like, oh, I think you would really enjoy, you know, you're writing a piece for vocalist. You should listen to Caroline Shaw's Partita for Eight Voices, which that in itself is like a week's worth of work. Right. On the first level, before you go in and do the year's worth of work on that piece. Um, or uh, just trying to give as many options as possible and also telling them wh where to explore. I actually put together a document for them too of like how I go about finding new music. And so I had a student who had never been on bandcamp.com and she was responding to music that was ambient and droney. Mm -hmm. And she had kind of identified these ambient and droney elements in other music that she was listening to, but didn't know that genre. And I was like, okay, you should look up ambient, but also we're going to go on Bandcamp. We're going to go to the genres. We're going to go to ambient and just pick one and see if you like it and then pick another one. And then let's, let's look at ambient noise versus ambient drone or ambient classical because hugely different vibes, but just trying to get them on the sense of like, they can and should be learning about a lot of different types of music and then trying to describe it. And from there, you can just pick out like, I like this kind of sound. I want to replicate this kind of sound. I can do that by doing however. Yeah. Ooh. All right, Lewis, let's back up. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Austin, Texas. Heard of it. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any family members in the arts? A couple, but not so many. I have a younger cousin who is a singer, and so she's in grad school right now. She went to North Texas for vocal performance and then is at Yale right now on their kind of early music vocal track, which is super cool. And then I have two older siblings, and they were both in band. And mm -hmm. so I think I was destined to be a band kid, even if I would like had no aptitude for music and decided not to go into it. Like you don't have siblings in band and get to not be in band at all. And then my dad plays some piano. He's just, he's a music hobbyist for sure. And really likes Joni Mitchell and really likes Bach. And so that was on the piano when I was growing up. And then my mom did like high school orchestra and has really not played very much since then. Um, both my parents are lawyers. And so they, uh, they didn't have a lot of free time. <laughs> sure. But my mom has recently gotten into cello lessons again, which she's wanted to do for a really long time. And then my older brother is the oldest of us has always, he played in a rock band in high school and has recently gotten into synthesizers. And so like I visited him over Christmas and I got to play with the synth with him and my like three, oh, three at the time. He's four now. I had to remember what year it is. Uh, my four-year-old nephew kind of messing around with the arpeggiator. There's a lot of appreciation for music, but, and, and same with a lot of my aunts and uncles, just like generally pro music family, but no no music lineage in particular to speak of. No, not professionally. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. Gotcha. So how does percussion come into your life? So I mentioned that I have only older siblings. I'm the youngest. Mm -hmm. And so when it came time for me to pick an instrument, my parents 
apparently had set this rule that was like no drums. We're not doing drums in the house. And being the youngest child and them having been parents for like 17, 18 years by that point, they're just like, we'll do it. And so I got a drum set when I was in fourth grade, did beginning percussion in band and just have stayed on that track since. So were you playing a lot of drum set, particularly when you started or that's even continued or? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because drum set is one of my least comfortable instruments now. Mm. (laughs) I think part of it is just, I played a lot of drum set fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade. And then by seventh and eighth grade, I got really into mallet percussion. And as I was making that transition into practicing more mallets, um, when I got to high school, there were some really, really good drummers at my school. And so what I should have done is picked their brains and learned a lot from them and been an understudy. And instead, I just kind of backed off and was like, well, drum set's covered. I, I don't need to do this. I don't need to embarrass myself in front of these people in the way that like when you're a freshman in high school and there are seniors in high school, like they are not humans to you. They are giants. I played a lot less drum set. I think probably high school is when I played the least amount of drum set. And then I took a couple semesters of drum set lessons in college, just as part of the undergrad curriculum. I did a summer of drum corps after my sophomore year and I played drum set in the front ensemble. And so that's, that's when I got a lot of my foundation back. I was just like, I played a lot of hours yeah. at, at that point. And since then, it's really just been functional. When there's a gig, I play a lot of musicals. But my strength on drum set is being a good reader and being a good chamber musician and multi-percussionist and not being a good improvising drummer. So I have a lot of respect for people who whose brain works like that, but that is not me. When you first get the drum set, what what kind of stuff do you like playing the most? What kind of music? This is going to be the dorkiest answer imaginable. I loved learning the drum set patterns in the book. Like mm. syncopation book and all of that kind of thing where it's just like 16 or 32 single measures or two bar phrases of just yeah. pattern that shifts. I would eat that up for breakfast. Like that was my favorite thing to do. Um, I remember being in fifth grade and my drum set teacher would come in and be like, okay, so next week I want you to learn this page. And I'd be like, I actually already learned it. Cause I thought it was fun. Uh, like I was that kid. And then <laughs> middle school, I was drumming a lot to like Bullet for My Valentine, Silverstein, like mid late 2000s emo screamo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which it's funny how like that period of your life music is just hardwired into your brain in a different way. Yep. And so I don't listen to that much that music that often now, but if I hear anything off Discovering the Waterfront by Silverstein, it's just like it's all there. Right back, you're back. It's all there. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, it's great. I love I love when there's like the the instant you're in the car and you're just like, you know, all the all the all the fills need to be covered, as we know. Exactly. When you start doing 
and focusing more on the mallets, what are you doing? Um, are you just kind of like marimba stuff primarily? You do a xylophone? Like what's what's the focus there? Primarily marimba. I think part of it was just I was in the wind ensemble at my middle school and I got assigned enough hard mallet parts that I went through and took the time to learn that I was like, wait, this is cool. Like it feels good to, I remember when I, my brain made the jump of, I see a flat on the page and I know where a flat is. I see E flat on the page and I know where E flat is. And that was a really just kind of intoxicating feeling. And then I don't know if you know, Robert Chapman, that name, he went to university of North Texas and is just finishing up a doctorate at uh, Miami cross school of music. Um, but he and I went to high school together. And so he was a senior, my freshman year, I went to, and he's freakishly good. Like nobody should be that good at any percussion, but I remember going to kind of a preview night for my high school where they try to recruit you to the fine arts. And I was in eighth grade and he was playing a six mallet marimba solo. (laughs) And I was just like, this is the coolest thing in the world. Like I, I have to do this. So then when I was in high school, I was in front ensemble. I was learning marimba solos. I was eating lunch in the band hall, watching Robert Chapman practice like heavy rep. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I, he should have been playing it, but like no high schooler should have been playing that music. I think he learned process of invention when he was a sophomore in high school, he was working on remember marimba by Erlen Wallen when I was a senior It's just really, really good stuff. And so he, he was the person whose brain I picked and that just kind of set me on the, I want to get really good at marimba track. And then I went to A&M commerce to study with Brian Zader, who was also stupidly good at marimba. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of what did it for me and marimba solo repertoire in general. When you were in high school, were you involved in anything else non-musical? Were you doing sports or student government or like having the video games or anything that was kind of filling out your time? Sincerely, no. I was in, I had to argue with my parents to take the non-AP classes so that I would have more time to practice. Wow. I learned... I was pretty dead set on it pretty early on that I was like, you know, I could take anatomy and physiology or I could take this class about fish. The band fish? About uh, just like aquatic sciences. Oh, okay. I got you. Okay. I'm sorry. This class was doing worksheets about how to take care of an aquarium. And I would just finish it really early and then go ask to go to the band hall and practice like a Bach transcription on steel drums. So I would, at some point I like, I just have always been exactly the same person. Sure. <laughs> that feels like something that I would do right now too. Um, <laughs> I do play a little bit of Game Boy Advanced and DS. Like I was a big Pokemon kid, mm. but I really didn't do a whole lot. Like I was never a big video gamer. I think I got my first console like gaming console um was the switch that i bought in 2020 once i had been out of school 
Mm-hmm. Uh, part of that too is like, I know my personality and I know that I can just fixate on things. And so when I was in college, I was like, I cannot get an Xbox or something because then I will not practice. I know myself well enough. I know how intrinsically motivated I am to practice, which is not. Um, it's very like, I need to learn this piece or especially like I need to learn this chamber piece because there are other people relying on me. Mm-hmm. I just know that a lot of those hours would have gone away if I had a distraction. Um, so yeah, I, w- I was not a big gamer and now it's like a much bigger part of my life because I have no brain cells to spare come 6 PM and it's a good way to kind of kill the hours. That's <laughs> funny just the the obsession just it's there Mm -hmm. that's great how are you aware of i actually i mean brian's an incredible job at at, um commerce how are you aware of the program so i was a rising junior in high school when i went to the university of north texas wearable workshop that Mm. they do or keyboard percussion workshop however they were calling it. And he was one of the uh, faculty there. And so I got a lesson with him because the solo that I played that year was Dream of the Cherry Blossoms by Keiko Abe. And for people listening that don't know, Zader is a student of Abe's. He wrote his dissertation on Benora Miki's Time for Marimba. He arranges Miki's music. So he's like deep in it. I, I remember I had come off of that year feeling really good because I played that solo at state and got a one, which is the best score you can get. And I got an outstanding, which is like a one plus. Um, and then I played it for Seder and he just tore it to shreds. <laughs> it was so fun. And he just had a lot of really great information. He's a very uh, charismatic and a really energetic teacher. Um, yeah. And he's really big into theory and analysis, which is something that I, had this budding interest in just from being in front ensemble and doing a lot of music theory stuff and just being a dork myself. Mm -hmm. And so when I was looking at college programs, I, I reconnected with him at PASIC my senior year when it was in Austin. Yeah. So I miss it not being in Austin. I loved it when it was in Austin too. I, yeah, no shade to Indianapolis, but it's, it's very nice when it's in Texas. Yeah. Um, so I, I met, I, I kind of saw him again there and he gave me the commerce pitch and it just seemed like a good place for me. And so that's where I wound up auditioning and going. And then I later, I, I met a lot of other people in the studio who had a very similar experience where they're like, yep, I thought I was hot stuff. And then Zader gave me like a three at solo and ensemble contest and some really good advice. And that's why I wound up studying with him because he does not pull punches yeah. as a teacher. Like he, he's got some years. So that was good. And it was really good studying with him. Like he is such a technical master at percussion. It's, it's bonkers. Yeah. Well, you know, what's, what's good and what I think it's good you responded to him 
as you did, I, I would assume that there are people who they get that response from him mm-hmm. again, think of their hot stuff. And I would assume it would, some people would just be like, well, I don't want to talk to this person again or doesn't know what he's talking about or. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which I wonder like how much of that is just a recruiting tool of making sure that he gets the right people. And like, you know, he's honest. If you go and take a trial lesson with him, he doesn't, sugarcoat things to make you want to come study with him. And it's not like he's super mean either. He's just direct um, in a real sure. kind, of done kind of way. But yeah, I think he, he's very authentically like the same teacher, no matter what he's doing. I, I agree. I don't think it's, it has a, um, it's him not trying to recruit necessarily. It's, mm-hmm. it's more of like, this is what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And if you want this, you know, yeah. That sounds like you did. And that, that's awesome. So is there anything in the town aside from the school? Um, at Commerce? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, there isn't. Um, they, after I graduated, they added a coffee shop. Ooh. So, yeah, which I don't think, I literally don't think there was a coffee shop before, like when I was in school. Um, it, it sounds a lot like I get the alumni um, emails from Zader and been hyping up that they've been building up the downtown quite a bit. And I believe them. Um, I just think like when I was in school, they were stuck in this pattern of only the commerce locals voted on any kind of city council matter. Ah, uh, yeah. And so they would just shoot down any approval for any new construction or any new business because they didn't want it to change. And they generally did not have a good view of the university or the university students. Mm. And it sounded like the town just wanted the school to go away while the university obviously is trying to build and build up the quality of life. So, um, I mean, Commerce is 15 minutes from Greenville, Texas, which is where the nearest movie theater was. Oh, okay. And um, an hour from Dallas, hour 15 from Dallas. And so you could go to shows, you could go to concerts at, like I went to concerts at North Texas and TCU and in Deep Ellum and in Dallas. So there were things to do. You just had to be willing to drive for it. Um, Otherwise you were in town practicing until 10 o'clock when the practice, when the building closed. And that's, I think part of the draw is that you are not distracted by Society, you are just, you're kind of there to work. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. What was the facility like there? It's actually really nice. They got a building, a new 25-ish million dollar music building a couple years before I started. And it's one of those that they designed it perfectly. There is, so there's this corner of the building which is the percussion suite. And so you've got the percussion ensemble rehearsal room next door to Zader's office, next door to the room where all of the instruments are stored. On the other side of that hallway are six percussion-only practice rooms, one of which has a drum set, a couple of which have five octave marimbas, one is like a good multi-room. And then in the middle of that side of the hallway is a set of wide 
double doors which open into the large ensemble rehearsal room. So you just take the marimba out of the practice room and roll it right in. Um, and then just further down the hall, across the other way from the rehearsal room, is the doors onto the stage in the concert hall. So you were very rarely taking instruments apart. Um, there was there there are a lot of percussionists that go there. I feel like the studio kind of ranges from the high teens to the low 30s. And so six practice rooms plus a percussion studio is not enough for everybody to be practicing every minute. We had to do a sign out sheet, but I, I got to practice as much as I needed to. And I didn't have to deal with the awful like cross campus halls that have to happen other places. So like, the facilities are great. You had mentioned that you were Ed and you switched. Mm -hmm. what, what happened there? I came in not really knowing which one I wanted to do. And Zader advised me that you can always start off Ed and drop to performance. It, you cannot start as a performance degree and then add a music ed major two years. Unless you're going to be there for seven years. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so I started off as music ed and was like, I'll, I'll do this. I'll get the certification and it'll help me if I want to get a job, just, just to have the option. Mm -hmm. And a, by the time I got to my fourth year, I knew that I didn't have any desire to teach K through 12. I knew that my plan was I was going to graduate and go to grad school and probably like try and become a college professor or just work outside of the music industry or work, I don't know, not be a K through 12 teacher and figure something else out and either be a performer or work at a drum shop or work outside of music and just play. But K through 12 was kind of out of the question for me by that point. I just don't, don't have it in me. I have huge respect for people that do, but <laughs> I just couldn't do it. And so by my senior year, I was in, I was in the fourth of five years and I was in these hardcore like education classes that were like, this is the weed out class. If I don't feel like you are ready to student teach, I will fail you. Which I don't even know if you're allowed to do as a faculty member, because they were straight up saying, if you, if I don't think you should be student teaching, you'll just get an F regardless of what you make. That seems like you're going to get sued. I'll just yeah. <laughs> yeah. It also seems like something that happens anyways at education programs. And maybe I was misreading between the lines or something, but that was the message. I got the message. And I was like, no, I'm not ready to student teach. I don't want to student teach. I don't want to do this. Um, I would rather, instead of making a 500 page binder on every instrumental method, I would rather learn a really hard marimba solo or spend more time writing. And so that's, that's when I went to Zader and was like, I, I just want to be a performance major. Please. Here's the, here's the game plan. This is how we're going to make this work. And he was like, yeah, okay. Sounds good. 
Now you also mentioned that you did uh, drum corps for mm-hmm. one summer. What was what was the core, and why did you want to do that? So that was Guardians, which is open class out of Houston area. I had originally gone for a couple of other cores, gone for keyboard spots, but it just didn't kind of never worked for me. Like schedule conflicts, it's expensive. It's a lot of travel during the semester. But then I wound up, I didn't have plans for the summer. After my sophomore year, I was going to the Great Plains marimba competition, and that was it. That's all I had on my docket. And there was a spot open at Guardians in May on drum set. And I was like, yeah, I'll get better at drum set. Like, it was very fresh. They were in their third year, and so they were not flooded with applicants. I don't... I don't think now with how much better I am at drum set than I was as a 20 year old, I don't think that I would have made a drum corps front ensemble um, on drum set, even if it was open class, but they had room and they were willing to take someone who wanted to learn. And so. And that late, you would assume that there's a cancellation or. Yeah, they need they actually like you're in the driver's seat, basically. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, I sent in an application. I like I was in town in Austin. And so I went to my high school and recorded a few grooves on the drum set and sent it in. Did you do any of the scream stuff from earlier? That would have been good. I don't think I have the chops for that anymore. I probably <laughs> probably don't now. What was the show that you were all, that was going on that summer? It was all light themed, and so it was uh, Luxurumke by mm. Eric Whitaker. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even remember the other tunes, to be honest. I know there was a Bach, something kind of in the opener. Yeah, kind of a whirlwind. <laughs> of a time, but it was a good time. I mean, we were not competitive. We did not leave the state of Texas. It was very early in their tenure as a drum corps, but I, I had a fun time and there are people that I marched with that I'm still fairly close with and just like big fans of their work from afar. Sammy Rogers, who is a music teacher, but also does roller derby. <laughs> oh, nice. She was in, I think she was later in high school when I marched. And so I'm a few years older than her. And so it was really nice to be like in grad school and see her going through her music degree. And I like just a proud big brother kind of vibes because it was a young core. I think I was the only people over 20 when I marched. What was the percussion ensemble and and the the large ensemble experience like at commerce so for large ensemble there was no orchestra it's all winds and percussion and piano and voice okay so it was just like texas band and and texas yeah Um, so it really was texas band we played a lot of mackie we played a lot of maslanka it was good. It, it it just was a lot of band. I left 
and I had been doing Texas band for seven years prior. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to grad school, I, I went to Dave and I was like, any ensemble, but band. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> He's like, if I lose, if I win this audition, I want to be principal in the orchestra. If I lose this audition, I want to be last chair in the orchestra. Right. <laughs> Just like no more band, please. Percussion ensemble. It was generally speaking, larger ensembles, a lot of percussion orchestra. I played piano on ionization. Mm. We did more Mislenko. We did hurtling through space at an unimaginable speed. We did uh, Palace of Nine Perfections by mm. Ways. Good piece. Yeah. I conducted that. What one. part did you have in that one? Do you remember? I don't remember. I conducted it at Nebraska. Oh, nice. Uh, the third movement. Oh, so, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, it's good, it's good stuff. Yeah. A very pirate heavy uh, compound meter section. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, it just sounds like a sea shanty to me. Yeah. Um, I think one of the more memorable things that we did in percussion ensemble was. Or I guess two things that stood out to me. We did the chamber competition when I was a senior. Mm-hmm. So I played Jose Before John 5, nice. played the Cajon part, and we did Robert Otomo's arrangement of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Mm, and I played yeah. solo with the accompaniment. And then I guess maybe two years before that, my sophomore year, there was the consortium for new mallet quartets by Dwayne Rice and Christopher Dean, which is when Dean wrote um, Sensing the Coriolis. And so I didn't get to play on the Dean until I got to Nebraska, but I did play the Dwayne Rice Berimba Quartet. And that piece is so good and so hard and so tonal. Um, But Dwayne Rice is like one of my favorite percussion composers, especially for keyboard percussion. Um, And so just playing that piece was a huge highlight for me and i definitely gravitate more towards chamber music than large ensemble music i didn't even realize how much of a draw that would be at nebraska until after i was there and having an amazing time because at nebraska we were playing pillar four my first year which was a dream piece of mine when i saw it when i saw the video post when i was an undergrad but i never thought i would actually get to play it I didn't think that was a real thing that people could do. Um, and then I got to Nebraska and Dave's like, yeah, just make sure you leave like 11 minutes for your recital for Pillar 4 because you're going to play on that in the spring. So, um, yeah, that was the program at Commerce. And I know Zader is really, really upped the percussion ensemble programming game. Since then, he, when I was... In the earlier years, I felt like he was really thinking pedagogically about this person needs to play snare drum and they need to play these rhythms. And so it's going to be four, 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 four. And as I was there, maybe my junior and senior year, he really got into more programmatic concert um, design. And I, the results speak for themselves. I mean, he's just really taken off on the percussion ensemble aspect there. And they just did the IPEC concert at PASIC, which I thought was a really, really strong program. Yeah, and it was. Like, obviously well-performed because you don't take percussionists 
too basic to play badly. Um, but like besides the execution, which is obviously going to be awesome, like the pieces selected and the composers represented and the variety of instrumentation used. And it, it just was a really cool concert to see. So how do you get to Nebraska then? Dave had written a piece for the steel band at McCallum when I was a senior. Um, he wrote a, again, like a concert style percussion ensemble type of work called Amorphous Solid that I just thought was really creative and cool and was so different from everything else we were playing. Like it was that like Dave Hall, melty hip hoppy chamber music, mm-hmm. like, like coffee streets on the same concert and a bunch of Andy Durrell stuff earlier in the semester. Uh, Cause we went to PASIC and Midwest that year. Mm. Um, and so kept in touch with Dave just through Facebook, ran into him at PASICs and had played apocalyptic etude at some point in undergrad and was generally a fan of his. And mm-hmm. I saw as I was a senior kind of prepping for grad auditions, saw that he had posted in one of the DFW area groups, I think mostly looking for undergrads, but just like, if you have students who want to get out of state and want to come study at a great program, send them to Nebraska. And it just clicked. Mm-hmm. I, so I, I put in an application there. He's a composer. There's great comp faculty. They had just done that basic show in 2016, which I am always embarrassed to admit that I did not go to. Hmm. Um, because they were playing at the same time as my friend Robert Chapman in the solo marimba competition. Yeah. And so I have a good excuse. Yeah, you do. But, um, I, I watched videos of their basic program after and just he and I are very much on the same wavelength in terms of priorities, thoughts about music, um, thoughts about artistry, which I feel like he is one of the first, I, at least since high school, he was one of the teachers that I really connected with Yeah. in terms of the type of art that we were both into. And he really wanted to start a steel band at Nebraska and steel pan is an area of specialization for me. So it just worked out perfectly. You've kind of hinted at this, but what was, was there a culture shock getting to Lincoln? Not so much of a culture shock. Uh, it was more of a weather shock. Yeah. That was, that was tough. It's just such a different experience being a graduate student from being an undergrad. It was really funny that I remember doing my large ensemble audition my first semester and I played snare drum, xylophone, and tambourine, and maybe crash cymbals. And that landed me principal in the orchestra, which meant I was playing timpani, which is not one of the instruments that I auditioned on. Mm -hmm. And my timpani chops in shape pretty quickly. But going from no string program to playing a Sibelius symphony and being a first semester grad student and not wanting to mess up was a really good uh, teaching moment. And I think the other big cultural thing at Nebraska was there were so many, I, I don't think I'd ever encountered a music double major in my life. Like at commerce, everybody is like, 
I'm going to be a band director. I'm going to be a band director. I'm going to be a choir director. I'm going to be a band director. Yeah. And so being in a studio with people that are like, oh, yeah, I compose a little bit. Oh, I'm a math major. I'm an English major. Oh, I'm doing a minor in Russian. It's the liberal arts mindset of everything makes you better at everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dave, he's big on intellectual curiosity and just cross-pollination of subjects, different subject matters. And so it was just such a wildly enriching studio to be a part of and one of those one of those studios where you don't realize it but every single person there is like (laughs) just amazing Mm -hmm. and should be famous for what they do Paige Decker, who March Vanguard um, and went to North Florida she was a senior my first year of grad school and so if I ever played in time in my first year, it was because I was standing next to Paige watching her hands <laughs> and she was holding the entire group together. And then she formed that trio with Dan Hartung and Jack Klecker, Jack Klecker of Blank House Media with Ian Willick, who was a composition major junior when I was there. It's just, there are so many amazing people who are all doing their own amazing projects. Um, plus like Micro and Matt Rush were doctoral students my first year it was their last year just being in a very a very rich and very creative studio was kind of mind-boggling because texas it was it was everybody practicing really hard Mm -hmm. you have a really good marching program and be a really good band director and play their marimba solos really well and those were somehow not the priorities at nebraska and that was it was just a really welcome shift for me. Similarities, differences between uh, Dave and Brian as teachers. Oh man, they are kind of exact opposites. Okay. I don't know if you've seen the meme that's like 1000 level professors. Okay. Here's a million readings and here's every homework and here's your schedule for the whole semester. And 5,000 level professors is like, let's go camping. (laughs) I'm not seeing this. <laughs> that, is, that is Brian and Dave. Um, I mean, Zader is just super regimented, super clear, very by the book. He mm-hmm. he has the systems and he swears by them. And Dave is like, his brain is up here so much of the time. Uh-huh. Um, and I think part of that, part of that is his personality. And part of that is that, at Nebraska, he was doing too much, um, like from a job teaching yeah. perspective, he was always at an overload. I think the yeah. entire time that he was teaching there. Um, and so it, it was a lot of technique talk with Zader and a lot of creativity talk with Dave and even like the format of our lessons, I think. I spent way more time getting coffee with Dave and talking to him about the latest episode of Radio Lab. <laughs> talking okay. to him. Yeah. But I mean it's results because Zader would he would walk you through if you didn't know something, he would just he would get he would read you the right act a little bit, but then you would talk about it and talk about how to fix it. And then Dave's lessons were like, 
Yeah. So, I mean, you know that you need to practice that more, right? Okay, cool. What what else do you want to do today? What else do you want to talk about? Um, and it, it's effective, I think, especially in the like, you want to do well because you want to have, there, there's no BSing it. Yeah. There's no wasting time half playing something. It's hard to express like how many different things we were able to talk about in lessons mm -hmm. because we were not talking about drums. Yeah. And then we did talk about drums and it would always tie back in one way or another. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it, I'm glad you said all that. Cause there's a, there's a, I, I feel like some of that might be, you know, you're a grad student. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, like if you're already there, then there's like, okay, you kind of know how to practice a little bit and you know, there's, you could, you know, refine it. Um, Cause I've said definitely, I know that that's the case with, I've seen with doctoral programs, both people I've talked to and the ones when I was in it, where you, you know, it's like, it's like a given, you know, like all the stuff that, that Brian was doing, you know, at that point you're like, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> and then, yeah, it's like the, the space opens up where you'd be like, what do you think this should do? And, you know, yeah. let's, and I, and, and I would assume also that you were with, with Dave, you were, you were getting a lot more into the, the writing part. Mm -hmm. So it's like, so those are different conversations then. Yeah. His approach is different per student. Yeah. And he knew that I was thinking that I was maybe not going to go much further down the percussion pipeline. Like if I had told him that I wanted to go to a marimba competition and win it, we would have very different lessons. Yeah. And to be fair, like I had expressed those goals with Zader. I was like, I want to go to Great Plains and I want to do my best. And he was like, no, you want to win. I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, um, win. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> so uh, with Dave, it really was more kind of holistic creativity. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was a huge culture shock. And I don't think I would have been able to get to that level with the Dave lessons had I not gone through the whole technique uh gauntlet with zader oh i'm sure so yeah it was a really good balance of schools and i think a really good order to do them in yeah yeah i think i think that's 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 wise wait was there like was there a year when you didn't teach yeah i had a gap year yeah what what happened was that just you needed a break uh that was partly covid and partly i didn't get jobs and so I was teaching a little, I had one student who I taught over Zoom, who is now a music ed major at Nebraska. Nice. Um, he lived in Iowa and wanted to study with Dave. And Dave was like, I'm not teaching Zoom lessons. That sounds awful. You can study with one of my recent graduates. Day job for part of the time uh, was that I worked as a city carrier assistant for the United States Postal Service. Absolutely the hardest job I've ever had in my life. Like, I will, if I ever catch myself complaining about being an adjunct or driving too much or being up early or late for a gig, I just remind myself that carrying mail is significantly harder. <laughs> so that was what I did in like, October, November 2020. I, so what is that? I, I have no idea. What does that even entail? 
I mean, past the training period where you go to male school, um, you get up, you get there at six or seven in the morning to the post office. You get a big bucket of mail that is sent for just whatever blocks you're driving. It's always the same different routes. Um, you sort all of that mail by address. And so you just slot it into all of these different little boxes. You then collect it and put it all in order. Uh, and then you put that in your truck and you drive it and you go house by house delivering. Either walking, which was my favorite, or driving and like sticking your arm out the window, which was mm -hmm. not my favorite. I also, on my second day on the job after training, broke my middle finger on my right hand, slamming the like sliding door onto it. Oh my gosh. So when, part of the reason, A, I just really like walking. And mm -hmm. like as a composer too, like it's the only way that I ever get anything done. But um, <laughs> like walking, delivering, I could reach into my bag with my left hand and mm -hmm. kind of gingerly open the mailbox and put the mail in with when you're driving a right-hand drive vehicle and the mailbox is on your right, you have to do everything right-handed where you grab the mail, open the mailbox, slide in, close the mailbox and mm -hmm. keep driving. Um, and so that, that was just painful. And I had a boss who I hold absolutely no grace in my heart for. <laughs> um, but I remember telling him this and he was like, well, you know, delivering mail is all the same. And I was like, no, it isn't. Like one of them I'm using my broken finger and the other one I'm not. Yeah, it was a it was a really tough job. It pays well. It's a good union job. I was a member of the National Association of Letter Carriers, a member of that union, which is something that I never learned about in music school, even though there are music unions. Mm -hmm. uh, so I thought that was, it's, it's just a funny chapter in my life. It made me much better at driving a truck. I had to learn how to drive a right-hand truck and back it in and park and everything. And so now when I have to drive a truck for a gig or when I had to drive a moving truck to move out to Winston, like that's a, a series of little skills that I have, but not something that I super strongly identify with. I also, I know way too much about mail is the other <laughs> thing. Like if my partner wants to mail something and she'll like try to send something to our friends, I'm like, oh, no, no, no you got to use the media mail for this because it's going to be way cheaper because you're just mailing a book. Yes, this is true. Mm -hmm. It's like all that kind of stuff. I do know a little bit too much about mail. So that's fun. That's a good party trick. Assuming that you've never gone to a party, you know, that's true. Yes. <laughs> but, I, but I imagine it would be a really great trick. Uh, <laughs> so the spring semester Part, this was part of the reason why I quit the mail job. The other was that I did not have any control over my schedule, so I could not play any gigs. Mm. And my finger was still really hurting, and I don't think it was fully recovering while I was using it every day. Sure. Um, so in the spring of 2021, it was the first year that they offered the uh, Steel Pan Fellowship at the Academy of Performing Arts at the University okay. of Trinidad and Tobago. And so I took Zoom classes all on steel pan uh, history, arranging, and then on the engine room of steel band. 
And so I got to study with some really amazing people through that too. That was my spring semester and my gap year. And then started an app. Technically, I started in February 2021, but I was just over Zoom doing those audition workshops. The steel band class classes mm-hmm. were those was there anything that was obviously you were doing them over zoom but there, was there any hands-on anything with that or was that simply you would just here's my arrangement like a typical zoom asynchronous or synchronous class yeah it was synchronous and so a lot of it was like an orchestration class you yeah. were like okay today we're talking about strums so here are the chords, and I want you to put in strums. Don't change the chords at all. Don't add any variations, but we're just going to look at everybody's. And then you would screen share the next class and go through everybody's. We would talk about what we liked, what we thought could go, could be improved. And then, all right, we're going to do a jam section. Let's talk about how to write a jam section, and next week you're going to turn that in. So I wound up, by the end of the semester, I had two short um, panorama-style arrangements. So I did Old Lady Walk a Mile and a Half by Kitchener. Okay. And then I did Somebody by Baron. Okay, I don't know that one. Another kind of classic Calypso. Uh, the Old Lady one I like feel really good about. I thought that was good work. And I have sent that arrangement to a couple of bands um, to play. And that that's funny, too, because panorama style is so classically informed mm-hmm. and so that is the most in tune i've ever felt with common practice harmony <laughs> um mm-hmm. and I, like as i was taking that class i played a beethoven concert with the lincoln symphony yeah. they did happy birthday beethoven uh children series and so i played excerpts of beethoven nine it's crash and bullet bass drum and a little uh, Beethoven five worked its way, a little Beethoven five quote worked its way into my arrangement in the minor section, mm. yeah, which is like, I would never do that. I would never go full kind of classical era in any of my other percussion writing, but in steel band, that's where it fits in. Yeah. It's hilarious and counterintuitive in a lot of ways, but I love it. <laughs> Lewis, I finished out with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Okay. First question, what's an issue in uh, percussion performance, percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? That's a really good one. It's so many. (laughs) Um, Keep your answer under 35 minutes if you can, please. Yeah, I'll I'll do my best. (laughs) I think it is trying to find the line of telling people what to do and letting them explore. For example, I've seen people say, you know, the goal of playing triangle in an orchestra is to get as many overtones as possible, Mm -hmm. which is probably true. A lot of the time I really, really, really try to teach my students. Here's where you get more overtones. Here's where you get fewer. Mm -hmm. What do you want when? How are we going to figure out what we get when? Because a lot of that is what instrument you're paired with, what the context is. Are you playing rhythms? Are you playing 
single notes? Are you more of an effect or, you know, whatever, but yeah, yeah. it's, it's so easy to compress these really complex thoughts into just like, you just need to do this. Look, we got to move on, do this. And I, I do everything in my power to avoid doing that, which is still not, like I definitely gave someone a sticking last week um, instead of making them figure it out. I mean, really my issue is that there isn't an infinite amount of time to teach everything uh, and get through uh, pieces in a way that allows us to teach them without trying to perform them as soon as possible to the highest level possible. But generally just my soapbox is try to tell people, try not to tell people what to do. Um, I have a bit with my, my students where if they ask me a question, I'll just be like, Oh, that's a great question. What do you think? Um, to the the point where it's a meme to them, (laughs) they're just waiting for it to happen. And sometimes I'll really surprise them by being like, just do natural sticking here. That works. And I've gotten better at tailoring that to different levels. So the beginner students, I will just explain what natural sticking is and have them write that in. Whereas my music minors and majors, I'm just like, hmm, I wonder. Great question. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Throw it back at them. Mm-hmm. I like that. Nice. Another question. What are the ways that you've thought about incorporated issues of inclusion, diversity, equity in teaching, performing, writing? Yeah, that's a really good one. Really what it boils down to for me is I only ever program or perform pieces by composers whose work I want to support, which means it's leaning a lot more towards people who are not straight cis white guys. Um, I mean, we're playing music by Evan Chapman. We're playing Second Thoughts this semester. It's a great piece, and I love Evan, and I I, I want to support his work. And that's what I'm to is I, there is such a material benefit for composers to have their works played because it's money in their pocket. It is ASCAP royalties or BMI royalties in their pocket. It is social proof that their work is worth performing. It's a resume or CV line for them. Yeah. Um, to the point where it's like, I want to program John Cage and I want to talk about John Cage, but he doesn't need the money and he doesn't need the accolades. And so let's talk about spoiler. Yeah. He's He's, no longer alive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which is part of why he needs the money. Um, he would all just, he'd spend it on foraging, but, um, I, I'd really try to get it to, if there is if there is a composer canon, which is a whole other can of worms, mm-hmm. let's talk about that composer in the context of a living composer whose work we can support, and then we can draw the connection. Because I think it is more fruitful um, to talk to talk about Steve Reich and then play a mallet quartet. You get two pieces for the price of one rather than to talk about Steve Reich and play mallet quartet. And so in programming that just gives me an opportunity to support a lot of living composers, um, which skews much more diverse. And the other thing too, is just, I really do my best to be a safe space for my students. If I hear someone saying something, even if it's a joke, 
I'll call them out. There's a really good Reductress. I don't know if you follow Reductress, but they're the Onion type satire articles. Oh, good. It maybe maybe actually good than the yeah. Onion used to be amazing. Yeah, um, but it's all just generally feminist and generally like women's perspectives. Yeah. Um, but there's one that's like guy who's being ironically misogynist actually just being misogynist, and so. Like I had a student who I hadn't worked with before who just kept being ironically a jerk um, to other members of the drumline. I was like, hey, man, have you seen this article? I think you would learn a lot from hearing the title of this article. I had another student, a comp student who came in and I was like, "Okay, what are we working on today? I heard you got a new project. She's like, yeah, I want to write this album called I Hate Men. I was like, cool, good. Let's talk about it. Let's work on it. I just really try to support where, where and whenever possible. I could see, or I could tell like when you're like, all right, now the Canon thing is a. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Feel yeah. free to give me like, just give me like a minute on just a, a Canon issue or, or thing you just think about with, with whatever we consider a Canon in whatever instrument you, if you choose. Okay. So I really do love John Cage. He has this story where when he went to college as an English major, he was so frustrated because every single person in his English class read the same book. He's like, we have 20 people here. We should be reading 20 different books. We should have more perspectives. That's how I feel about music. Um, I understand the benefits. I've seen them with my own eyes, the benefits of everybody knowing Beethoven 9, because then you don't have to rehearse it. The conductor can just say, oh, you guys know how I do this one. All right, next up. Which to me, again, is terrifying because I'm 24 years old playing in this ensemble of people twice my age. And I don't know how he conducts this one. And I would love to spend that rehearsal time right. uh, not missing a crash or playing one in the rest. But there's just so much more music that you can access if you are willing to look past what you think your students need to know to get out into the work Because the other thing, too, is... I myself am definitely not dismantling the canon. Like there are schools probably playing Mallet Quartet right now, even though I'm not, mm -hmm. I have no effect on them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so th those pieces are still going to be there. And if they're really that great, people will come back to them. And if they're not that great, then it's fine. If they don't get played, the composer, if they're dead, they're not going to mind. That's true. I, I I'll throw this one at you since you're I know you're you've got the marimba chops to, mm -hmm. to get this to to hear the story. But when I was in when I was in grad school, I've, and I I'm pretty sure I've said this on the show before. But when I was in grad school, my um my mentor Corp McLaren, I was working on mm -hmm. um, Northern Lights, and he said he's like and I you know and, and I was and I played it for a number of years as you should because it's a mm -hmm. It's a really good piece, but it's also really hard, and you might as well keep it in your hands for as long as you can on that kind of stuff. And he said, just kind of offhand, he said, uh, you know, in like five years, ten, nobody's, 10 years, nobody's going to be playing this anymore. And I was shocked. And you know what? I have almost never heard – like it's been a – I can't even remember the last time. Right. I'm sure it still gets played, but it was one of those where like at the – it was one of the hot pieces at the moment. Mm -hmm. and, and I just was like – I was, I just was shy. I didn't believe him when he said that. And then it's, it's come true. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I think the thing too is like I learned three moves when I was in grad school, not because I think you have to, but like that piece is a banger. And it's so hard. <laughs> I, I learned, uh, two years before that, I had learned Paul Lansky's Pandemonium, which mm. is Neil Pan solo, very much in the same structure as three moves. Yeah, yeah. I had played Springs in the year in between, and it's it's good to learn music that you like, and that that's a really great angle to take regardless of whether or not the piece is in the canon. Yeah. 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 Good point. Gotcha. All right. Some other questions. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Oh, I don't know about that. I've def I've had students dress up as me before, which is pretty good. Especially like when I was in grad school in 2017, 2018, you know, H&M button down and flacks. Easy, easy win. <laughs> Besides that, I don't think I've had students nail an impression of me to my knowledge. That's probably the bigger part. Mm. So they need to do them in front of you so you can judge and figure yeah. out. Well, got it. Yeah. Okay. We'll have to, we'll work on that. Your most impractical item of clothing. Hmm. I have a full body cow costume that I wore for the Adams Family musical show on Halloween. Oh, nice. Uh, this last year, we were on stage, so I was visibly a cow playing the drum set book. I kept it. It's in the closet. It's hanging up. Probably will not wear it until next Halloween, if that. But just for uh, uses per year, that's got to be one of the lowest ranking. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. You probably, you look at that and you're like, ah, we still got a ways to go. <sighs> yeah. Which that's, that's just a few slots down after my uh, skeleton print t-shirt, you know? Oh, yeah. But I am going to get to wear that uh, in the off season because we're doing a children's concert with the high point community orchestra and I'm mm. playing xylophone part on fossils. Yeah, there it is. I like. Uh, <laughs> so I went up to the conductor. Perfect. Like, I, I will be wearing my skeleton shirt. By the way, he's like, "Yeah, that works." She's like, "Yes, nice. <laughs> That's awesome." All right, uh, what is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Hmm, a great and terrible movie: The Killer Clowns from Outer Space, nineteen eighty. I want to say four. Uh, I'm going to look it up. 88. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with this one? I see. I know it by name. I don't know that I've ever seen it, but I, I mean, I've. Oh, so yeah. I love it. <laughs> um, it's so good. I watched it when I was in eighth grade, which when you watch a campy bad movie at that age, it just uh -huh. really becomes your entire identity. Um, that's a great one. And then recently I've been watching a lot of weird movies, which have, I feel like we're in kind of a more weird mainstream movie phase, you know, everything everywhere. All once a couple years ago, yeah. Alt burn a couple of months ago, <laughs> more yeah. things like movies yeah. are weirder and grosser and I'm all here for it. Yeah. All just bonkers. Fascinating. Yeah. Strange. Yeah. Yeah. That's my favorite. Nice. Nice. I have a faculty member here who 
she is obsessed with Saltburn. Has mm-hmm. watched it like, and we've had we had. She was like, okay, when you watch this movie, uh, be, there's she's like, there's a scene where you're like, okay, and then there's another one where you're like, all right, that's that's kind of weird, and then there's the next one. <laughs> she's yeah. like, I was like, I want to know what you think about. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about too. I know. Yeah, I know exactly which ones in what order you're talking yeah. about. Um, no, well, it's one of the things I think about with music a lot too. Is that one of my frustrations with music departments is sometimes we are so far beyond the curve on weirdness mm-hmm. from our neighbors. Like dance shows are way more produced. Art students are doing way more weird stuff. I mean, studying Fluxus as a historical movement, which we don't even get to in the music history classes. So I'm all for it. I'm all for weird art. You know, bringing bringing music into the 20th century, dare we say the 21st. Yeah. Well, you know, it's really fascinating, if, particularly on the dance side, because you can have, like, you can have, you can play, and I have done this in music history, where you play, like, some of the more really avant-garde mm-hmm. music and there's not that much of a reaction to it. I, I think some of it's because a lot of students, well, at least here at Mizzou, they, they are around that kind of music all Mizzou the time. So, special, yeah. Yeah. But like you put up a, you put up a dance scene where it's, where it's like completely out there and there's like immediate reaction. Like they don't even know how to take it in almost. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if you've, you've noticed, you could see it like a difference between how, like even how audiences react to these different arts. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's just, I, I really appreciate how much production goes into, especially dance performances. Cause I feel like yeah. they're in a lot of ways, our closest analog, especially as percussionists, yeah. but I mean, they have costumes, they have lighting and they have music and they're doing their own thing. We just barely have certain aspects of those. We just got the percussion ensemble concerts moved into the black box theater for this year, though. We had our first mm-hmm. one a couple months ago, and as a vibe shift, just exactly the right energy. And one of my percussionists is a music or a theater tech major, and she does lighting design for mm-hmm. us. It, that was a really special experience, and I think we're gonna make that the floor from here on out. Is black box with lighting, nice, so that we can pretend to almost be near the same level as some of the other artists. Nice. Very cool. All right. What's a favorite book? Ooh, uh, Interpreter of Maladies by Jhumpa Lahiri. Oh yeah. You know that one? I I know Lahiri. Mm-hmm. I think I've read something, but by them, but I, I can't remember which one anyway, but what remind me what that one's about. It, it's just a collection of short stories. Okay. Um, and then there's another collection, Unaccustomed Earth, mm. author, which has the short story Hell Heaven in it, which okay. is one of the most like gutting 20 to 25 pages you'll ever read. I think it was in the New Yorker at one point, so you are probably able to find it online um, mm-hmm. about the whole book. She just put out Roman stories uh, last year, and I have a signed copy from my bookstore that I have not cracked open yet, even though I got it a few months ago. Nice. Did she do the namesake? Yes, I think so. Okay. 
that might be the one I'm, I'm most familiar with of, of hers. Mm-hmm. Which is a full, that's full novel, I believe, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so this might be a related one, but like if you meet someone and they uh, and they say, I like blank, whatever that is, and you would immediately go, okay, we're good. Mm-hmm. What's that for you? Oh, that would be the playlist on Spotify that was created by Cantaloupe Music, um, which is the publisher for like a lot of the Bang on a Can All Stars mm. and everything. But the playlist is called Bangers. <laughs> um, that one, that playlist, is a big one. Or try to go for a deeper cut here. Or something not music related. I really like the films. It's going to be music related. I really like the films of Hayao Miyazaki, mm-hmm. um, and the scores of Joe Hisaishi. Um, also, tangent. Just because I think you might appreciate it. When Marnie was there, which is another Miyazaki Ghibli movie, was actually scored by Takatsugu Muramatsu, who wrote Rabbit's mm-hmm. Solo Land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just love that piece of trivia specifically if someone's like oh yeah i love the joe hisaishi scores and how much they sound like dvorak's last couple symphonies that's it nice like that's the one centimeter window into my brain because that's where my brain is so much of the time (laughs) castle really sounds like dvorak eight like it's kind of not even close (laughs) Awesome. I like, I like that connection. All right. When you go back to, let's say, visit family in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, is there a food or a place to eat that you like have to go to or else it's an unsuccessful trip? Yeah, there's two places. So mm-hmm. there's El Chulito, which is a taco place, walking distance from my house. That's like get in on a late flight, sleep in, walk to Chulito, have like take the tacos back, have breakfast at ha- my home. Like that's when the break starts. Yeah. Um, and then Wheatsville co-op is a grocery store and they've got a deli mm-hmm. in there. In Austin, they've got two locations, um, one close to UT's campus and then one on South Lamar, I believe. But they make like the best fried tofu sandwich that's, mm. Be like a popcorn chicken po' boy. Uh, it's popcorn tofu. It is so good that I, I lived off of that in high school, and uh, I do my best to live off of it when I'm at home. Awesome. So those are the two places. <laughs> that's that's great. All right, where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Mm, I have been through Trinidad a little bit on route to St. Vincent and the Grenadines mm-hmm. played a panorama there in 2014. I, I have to go to Trinidad. Like I, I need to. And so that's the next place that's really on my list. Just finding a place, finding a time to do that, that is compatible with an academic schedule here is tricky. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also like if you were trying to, to do, all the beginning of the year panorama stuff that's during a semester. Like, yeah, yeah, that's really tough. 
Uh, strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? I just told the story, and so it's fresh in my brain. But when I was in grad school, we at Nebraska, we did a runout kind of tour, and we played at a high school in Kearney, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And all of the grad students were reading off their iPads. We all had Bluetooth pedals. All of the kids at the high school were airdropping us memes the entire performance. <laughs> and this is like, we were playing Dave Hall's interludes for probably the second time ever. It was right after he'd composed them. And so it's bowed vibes and prepared vibes and now and just a lot of coordination yeah. to add also declining <laughs> airdrop requests. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard enough to keep time in a bowed vibraphone ensemble if everybody's paying attention to each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we got off stage and all we were fuming and the undergrads are like, you guys didn't know about airdrop. You didn't know that people like this is all we do during marching band is airdrop each other memes <laughs> on the iPads are like, OK, no, we didn't know about that. And I remember after that concert, too. Dave was like, all right, thank you guys. You've been a great audience. And I just remember being backstage like, no, you weren't. <laughs> so mad. Um, yeah, that's 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 a good one. That's up there for sure. That's awesome. That is that is a very 21st century uh, <laughs> problem to have right there. Yeah, as opposed to playing drum set in the cow costume, which I think is uh, timeless. Yeah, right. Of course. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, last question, Lewis. One piece of art uh, could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, video games, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently. I really like the Nintendo Switch game, Dave the Diver. Okay. Game. It is about uh, your... You are diving. It's split up into day and night or like morning, afternoon, evening cycles. Morning and afternoon, you can go diving for fish. And then at night, it's you're working in a sushi restaurant. So the chef makes all the dishes based off the ingredients that you get. And you run around serving the right dish to the right customer and cleaning up and filling up their tea and whatever. Mm -hmm. The way that that game expands out into so many more than those two things is incredible. I didn't realize there would be a plot to it. I didn't realize there would be good characters. There's a farming aspect. There's night diving. There's combat. There's upgrading your weapons. And just the fact that it's this little Pandora's box that keeps growing in ways that you do not expect there to be mini games in a $15 indie game about fishing and diving, uh, that, that was a really cool one to play through. I also specifically want to shout out the song My Dog's Eyes, which is one of those that is a pre-recorded audio that someone uh, chopped up and then added music to. Okay. The artist is Zamudo, which is maybe one of your cousins. Um, Oh, sure. Yeah. Could be. Z-A-M-M-U-T-O. Oh, wow. That's close. Yeah. That's why I had to look it up. I was like, I'm going to say Zambito if I don't oh. actually. Maybe I did write it. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. 
If you did, it's a great song. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm glad someone noticed finally. Yeah. Um, that's one of my partner's favorite songs, and I just played it for my uh, theory class. I try to give them different music as they're walking in mm. to the fact that we are talking about triads and seventh chords and Roman numerals. Right. And want to get the music music in there, too. Yeah. Um, and that's just highly recommend. So great to have Lewis on the show. I wish him the best of luck at High Point and all things Winston-Salem and Greensboro and Kernersville and all the other great towns there in central western North Carolina. And for continued success doing all the things. Thank you again, Lewis. This week's rave is the 2023 film The Zone of Interest, starring Christian Friedel and Sandra Huller, based on a novel by Martin Amos and written for the screen and directed by Jonathan Glazer, now in theaters and also available for rental. I had my reservations about this film prior to seeing it, just from reading up so much about how it has divided critics and its polarizing nature. But I have to admit, all I saw watching this movie was a devastating portrait of life during the Holocaust. Without giving too much away, because it is well worth your time to experience this movie. The essential plot is a focus on the domestic life of Rudolf Haas, played by Christian Friedel, and his wife, Hedwig Haas, played by Sandra Huller, during World War II. Rudolf Haas was the main architect of the killing machines that were the ovens of death in the Jewish internment camp at Auschwitz, Poland. And this is primarily a look at their domestic life away from the killing that is happening essentially right next door. The item to note, and part of what makes this film so devastating, is that you essentially are watching a domestic drama unfold, but you're doing so while the sounds of what's going on at the internment camp are very audibly heard. And it's that jarring juxtaposition that you have to take in. You're never shown the atrocities perpetuated on the Jewish people, but you are very, very aware that they are happening. I'm just going to leave it at that. You know, as good as Christian Friedel is in the role of Rudolf Haas, this movie is yet another incredible performance by Sandra Huller. She's nominated this year for Best Actress for one of my favorite films of the year, Anatomy of a Fall, and she's just as good in this movie. The Zone of Interest is also nominated for Directing and Adapted Screenplay for Glazer, as well as one of the 10 nominees for Best Picture. If you're in the mood for a devastating film that will both break your heart and make you really think, then check out The Zone of Interest, now playing. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud and Spotify and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and X at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then. <laughs>